So we want to let our children four years old through third grade make their way to junior worship. And if you're new here and you're wondering where that is, just follow these folks that are going in this direction. Everybody else, take your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 16. Luke chapter 16, we're going to be jumping in the middle of that. But before we do, I want to remind you of an incredibly important aspect of our worship assembly. And our worship and, and off is our offering to God that we bring to Him each week. Instead of passing the plates, we are in the habit now of four different ways we provide for you to, to give your offering to the Lord. You can mail a check to our church address. You can give your automatic draft through a bank, which is easy to do. You can go online to our website, click on the home page. There's a button that says give. That's easy to do. Or if you are, on, if you are with us in person, you can drop off uh, your contribution in the basket that's right there at the table. And if you're not with us in person, but you're with us live streaming, we are absolutely delighted, we are humbled, and we are honored to have you with us today. Luke chapter 16 is going to be our passage, verses 19 through 31. I do want to mention, I was asked to mention this to you, our prayer room right now also is open. And if you're just sitting here and you can't concentrate because you have come with an incredibly heavy burden on your heart and you need somebody to pray with you, you walk out this direction in the hallway and you just keep circling around, follow the signs to the prayer room. One of our shepherds and a couple of our members are there and they would be absolutely delighted to pray with you. Luke 16, verse 19. I don't know, I think it was Tuesday night our, in our president's State of the Union address. If you, if you watched it or listened to it, certainly the, the war in the Ukraine dominated a lot of what he spoke about. But another dominant theme in his speech was the economy. And that needs to be talked about. Rising inflation. The cost of living and even like we want to hear something said about the crazy prices of, of gasoline. The president and his advisors, they made sure to speak about the economy because that's a big deal to us. It hits us directly. It hits us personally. And that's true now, but it was also true when Jesus walked on the earth, and he understood that. And that's why, as I told you last week, that Jesus spoke more about money and material possessions than any other topic. But there's another theme, another dominant theme that you'll notice when you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that you see in Jesus' teachings, and that's on the topic of hell. We see in the Bible that Jesus spoke about hell more than anyone else, and Jesus spoke about hell more than everyone else combined. Some time ago, there, somebody decided, or family decided, to no longer be a part of our East Side family. And they, they had a, a, a number of reasons, but one of their reasons is they had not been with us for a long time in person. They had not been with us long, live streaming as well. On their, their first Sunday back... I was teaching on hell from the book of Jude. They didn't like that. So they're not coming back. Now I want you to know that I don't get up on Sunday mornings with a burning desire, no pun intended, with a burning desire to preach about hell. But if I'm going to be faithful and honest to the word of God, 
I cannot ignore it. If you don't like me speaking about hell, then I would highly recommend that you not read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and especially the red letters that indicate Jesus' words, because he spoke about it a lot. And that surprises some of us, because we think of Jesus, and he is as one who is merciful, compassionate, and loving. And if someone is merciful, compassionate, and loving, well, certainly they wouldn't be speaking about the topic of hell, but he did, and he did a lot. And as a matter of fact, it is because he was merciful, and compassionate, and loving that he spoke about it. To ignore it would be the most unloving thing one could do. And so here in this very strong parable, Jesus takes these two dominant themes in his teaching that get a lot of his attention, money and possessions and the topic of hell, and he brings them together for a very powerful and sobering lesson. This parable follows actually the parable that we looked at last week. It's just right after that. And it it fits into our four-part mini-series that we've been looking at in Luke, which I've entitled Jesus' Kingdom Economy. And so basically today's lesson takes the past three lessons and it just summarizes all of them and it very strongly drives home Jesus' point, leaving you to this conclusion of, oh, oh, I I see what he is saying. Now, because some of you are going to probably mention to the, to this to me after the lesson, there are some who consider this story that I'm going to read today is not a parable, but a true story. I'm not one of those individuals. I regard this as a parable. That's the way I'm going to approach it. I believe it has all of the characteristics of a parable, with one exception. I'll mention that uh, later. But though I believe it to be a parable and not a true story, this parable very graphically reveals some incredibly important realities. It reveals to us important realities of of Jesus' kingdom economy. So let's take a look at it. There's three scenes, okay? We're going to look at this in three scenes of this story. Scene number one, we're just going to entitle this Life. Okay, scene number one in this parable is Life. And we're going to be introduced to our two characters in the story. Verse 19. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen, and he lived in luxury every day. That's our first character. Now, purple, maybe you're aware of this, not only was it a sign of of royalty, but in this day, you wore purple, people would go, oh, that guy's got some money. Purple, there were two ways you could get purple, but one of the ways you could could get the, the color of purple from a mollusk in the sea. One mollusk, and you would get one drop of purple. So you can imagine the work, the effort, and the expense to dye a complete um, piece of clothing into the color of purple. So he wore purple, but it also says he was dressed in fine linen. The purple was his outer clothing. The fine linen was his inner clothing. This was basically his underwear, and he didn't just wear any underwear. He wore fine linen, which was likely from Egypt. His clothing wasn't just his Sunday go-to-meeting. This is what he wore to church on Sundays. But this is the way this guy looked and dressed every day. It also says he lived in luxury every day, which basically means he had, he had exotic feasts, fancy banquets. This guy partied lavishly all the time. So the first character is a guy who was living 
the good life, living the dream. Verse 20, we're introduced to our second character. At his gate, and that's important to note about the rich man, this gate implies a gate that was the gate of a castle or a mansion. So that tells you about this guy's house. At his gate, verse 20, was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. Now, I want you to notice something that that I really appreciate about Jesus' story here. I'm guessing everyone in town knew the name of this rich guy. He was popular. But his name is not given in this parable. But the poor man, the, the hurting man, is named. I mean, I love that about God. You may consider yourself a nobody in society. But God knows your name. His name, Lazarus, actually was an abbreviation of a Hebrew name. That was Eliezer, which basically, which literally meant the one whom God has helped. And that's kind of odd that Jesus picked that name because you don't look at Lazarus and go, now there's a man whom God has helped. To the contrary, you would look at the rich man and say, now there's a man whom God has helped. And you can imagine Lazarus perhaps lying at the gate thinking, How in the world did I get this name? But you understand why Jesus gave him this name when you see this person from the larger eternal perspective of the story. It says that Lazarus was laid at his gate. And that just basically means somebody dropped him there. Somebody had to bring him and carry him there. So that's telling us this guy couldn't walk. He was crippled. And Dr. Luke, we know that Luke, the author of, of this gospel, was a doctor. He tells us when, in medical terms that his body was covered with sores. And those sores, this is a word that's conveying pus-filled sores and oozing lesions all over his body, likely from being malnourished. And these dogs that were coming to lick at his sores, this wasn't like the rich man's really cute golden doodle that happened to live in the mansion. These were these these, um, ugly, dirty, diseased, mongrel, street-scavenging dogs that were licking and gnawing at this man's flesh. And you can imagine the odor it must have been walking past him, making your stomach turn. And so, so honestly, Jesus, in his words used here, he's getting kind of gross right here before we go to lunch. And speaking of lunch, notice that it says, since the rich man's banquets, he didn't eat at the city gate. Since the rich man ate inside at his table, but it says Lazarus longed to eat what fell from the rich man's table, this likely means that the leftover scraps from inside the house were thrown to the curb. And it's historically important to know that in this day and time, people didn't have utensils like we do, but they ate primarily with their hands and primarily with their right hand, but they didn't have napkins. And so in a wealthy home, there would be bread on the table, old bread that was not going to be eaten, but it was used to wipe your hands with, and this bread would then be discarded to the curb. That was likely the food that this poor Lazarus longed to eat. That's nasty. And some of us remember pictures of people downtown digging through the garbage and picking up a chicken bone that's been eaten and eating on it further. That's the guy we're talking about here in this story. 
These are our two characters. You could not find two more contrasting and disparate lives than these two men. Scene number one, that's the life. But then scene number two is death. Verse 22. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. So you see in life, they like didn't have anything in common. Except for one thing. They both died. And their riches and their poverty had no influence over that. Death is no respecter of persons. Death, is, death is, a, is, the, is the equalizer we see in this story. And it was this death that changed everything for both of these individuals. It's kind of sad to me if you compare the two stories of them. That there's no mention of the poor man's burial. No mention of it Jesus has in the story. And that's probably because he wouldn't have been buried. His body would have been laid in a commoner's grave or it would have been taken and dumped in Gehenna, the, the outside city dump that was always burning with fire. But of the rich man, it does mention his burial. Historically speaking, and likely he had a very fine and elaborate and, and fancy burial. I love, though, the way it says of Lazarus that the angels carried him to Abraham's side. You know, I'd rather be carried away by angels than to have a grand and fancy funeral. Scene three, and this is the scene that gets the most attention. Scene one is life. Scene two is death. Scene three is life after death. Verse 23, in Hades where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. Jesus is drawing a picture with this story. I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been set in place so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He, being the rich man, answered, then I beg you, father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not come also to this place of torment. Verse 29, Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said. But if someone from the dead goes back to them, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead ton of stuff here don't have time to cover it all but it's pretty simple to understand there are there are two destinies two eternal destinies after death there is heaven and there is hell and certainly for Jesus original hearers who were a Jewish audience primarily this would have been incredibly shocking for them for two different reasons First of all, because we see this rich man, he didn't just call Abraham, Abraham. He called him Father Abraham. That tells us this is a Jewish person. But secondly, 
This guy being wealthy, for, for the people of his day, this would have been in case, an indication of his wealth of, of God's blessings. And so the guy, the guy you would expect in heaven because of his religion and because of his wealth, he's, he's in hell. And the guy you would expect in hell because he certainly in life looked incredibly cursed. There must have been sin in his life for him to have lived in such a miserable state. That was their, that was their way of looking at, at calamity and illness. That guy is in heaven. How, how did that happen? But it actually doesn't say heaven. Of course, they understood it was heaven because wherever Abraham is, their father, he's in heaven. And it says that this, this Lazarus was at, depending on your translation, Abraham's side, or some of the translations say Abraham's bosom. And with that terminology, it's very likely that this is referring to Lazarus and Abraham at a beautiful, large banquet or feast. You know some of the parables of Jesus teaching about the kingdom of God, and it says glorious wedding feast. And when the people in the first century would eat, they would not sit in chairs like we do. You've seen some of the pictures. They would recline. And so they would recline, if I understand it correctly, to their left. They would never eat with their left hand. They would eat with their right hand, and as they're reclining they're leaning into the side of the person into the bosom of the person to their left if you read the book of John you know that the apostle John it said he was at Jesus bosom I don't think it means he was sitting in Jesus lap I don't think Lazarus was sitting in the lap of um, of Abraham but he was leaning in Abraham's side that's an incredible picture of this poor man at an incredible banquet at a seat of honor next to the greatest of all of the Old Testament characters, Abraham. Everything is now reversed. The one who was hungry and in pain is, is reclining in comfort at a banquet. The one who lived in luxury and fine dining every day is now, as Jesus describes it, in agony. The one Lazarus who was a beggar used to be, and now the rich man, verse 27, he is the beggar. Lazarus, who used to long for, for, the, for drops from the rich man's table to relieve his hunger, that's how he used to be. Now the rich man longs for drops of water from Lazarus to relieve his suffering. That wasn't possible. But there was no crossing over him as, over, as Abraham described to the rich man, from one location to the other. There's no crossing from heaven to hell, nor from hell to heaven. Following one's death, the eternal destiny is forever sealed with no hope of change. That's sobering. The hope of change is now while still alive. And the rich man, he finally understood this so he asked Abraham could you at least could you at least get Lazarus and send him back from the dead to warn my five brothers that would I mean if somebody from the dead would go and warn my five brothers man I'm sure they would awaken to God and his word and they would repent and can you imagine if 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 we could do that today can you imagine that if I said to you guys, our, my dear brother who was, I'm very, was very close to, Jim Emman, who passed away a couple of weeks ago, what if I told you he's here today and he's going to tell us what it's like in the afterlife? Because Jim and I met together once a week and all he wanted to talk about 
and write about was the afterlife. He was very passionate. What would Jim tell us? Would you listen? Or what if, what if I could bring somebody back from hell? For example, well, I'm not going to mention whom I think it might could be. What, what, what would they say? We, wouldn't we be on the edge of our chairs listening? We would be repenting of our sins. Those of us who haven't been baptized, we would be baptized today. And then we would take this guy on a, on a world evangelism tour to spread the word of what life in the afterlife is like. And Abraham says to the rich man, it just wouldn't do any good. Because he says they have Moses and the prophets. And you go, well... Uh, no they don't actually they're long dead what do you mean Moses and the prophets saying that they have Moses and the prophet was the equivalent to say they have the books of Moses and prophecy it's the equivalent of saying they have the Old Testament scriptures and that was a reference to their Bible and Abraham is saying if they don't listen to God's word even if you were to bring up somebody to stand here today people still wouldn't listen. And you really wonder if Jesus wasn't referring to his resurrection. He came back from the dead. And there's still people up to this day resisting and not listening to the gospel. Church, this shows us the incredible confidence and the power that is placed on God's word if we will proclaim it and if others will listen. Now, I could go on for two or three weeks, perhaps. There's much to be learned from this series about, or from this parable about life after death. There's a lot we could talk about. What is heaven like and what is hell like? I'm going to let you do that in your life groups. Because here's what I believe. I believe that the request of the rich man to warn his brothers who were still alive on this earth tells me that the, the main emphasis of this parable isn't to tell us what hell and heaven are like. It does that. But I don't think that's the main emphasis of this parable. I think the main emphasis of this parable is to talk to us about how we're living our lives right now while we're still on this earth. And so I want to close now with some brief bullet points of practical application from this parable about what this parable is teaching us about Jesus' kingdom economy. This parable tells us that in Jesus' kingdom economy, life is guided by an eternal perspective, not temporal. Of this rich man, it says, in your lifetime, you received your good things, meaning he lived only for this world. He lived only for himself. He did not live for eternal life. He did not live for God. He did not live for others, which is crazy because he was a religious, church-going, Bible-believing person, and he was so far from God. This parable tells us that in Jesus' kingdom economy, true riches and true poverty are defined differently than how they are defined here on this earth. This parable tells us that in Jesus' kingdom economy, health, wealth, and religion are not necessarily a mark of blessings from God. So don't be fooled by them. This parable tells us that in Jesus' kingdom economy, there is no promise of earthly riches and earthly health in this life, but rather a promise of true riches and healing in eternal life. 
This parable tells us that in Jesus' kingdom economy, how you live your life here on this earth, it reflects how and where you will spend eternity after death. Now this story, let's understand, is not some story portraying a, a Marxist victory of the proletariat working class over the exploitive rich. This story is not, well, rich people go to hell and poor people go to heaven. That's the story. No, that's not true. Actually, Lazarus was with Abraham, and we know from Genesis 13 too, Abraham was a very wealthy individual. The point of this parable is not how much you have, but what you're doing with the wealth and possessions that you have and what you're allowing them to do to you while you're here on this earth. This parable is telling us that in Jesus' kingdom economy, church, nothing is more important in your life than investing your life, your possessions, and your money in what is eternal. Nothing is more important than that. This parable tells us that in Jesus' kingdom economy, investing your life, your possessions, your money in what is eternal means using your life and all that you have for the Lazaruses of the world. And Lazarus, I believe in this story, represents the lost. And the broken, the hurting, and the poor. And this man walked past him every day. But you see God's heart. You see God's heart for this individual. God's heart for the lost and the poor of our world. And he knows each one by name. Do you. This parable tells us that in Jesus' kingdom economy, you can't have two gods, as Jesus previously said in last week's lesson. We saw that. Who or what is your God? Who or what holds the highest place in your life? I would encourage you to come on Wednesday nights right here at 6.30. Uh, one of our shepherds, Alan Austin, is leading us through a study of modern-day idolatry. This parable tells us that in Jesus' kingdom economy, gaining all that the world has at the expense of your soul is the, most, is the greatest mistake you could ever make. Earlier in Luke, Jesus tells us, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world but loses his own soul? It would be really cool. It would be amazing if I could bring someone up here from heaven or hell, and let them speak to us. But even more powerful and more amazing than that is the Word of God that has been read and spoken to you today. The question is, how are you responding to God's Word spoken to you? How are you responding to the gospel of Jesus Christ? What is His Word to you. Let's ask him as we stand together in prayer. Father, as you that your word is sufficient to create faith, transform lives, and to open our hearts to know Jesus as Lord and Savior. Take these strong words of yours and embed them into our hearts 
and take us to a place of faith, those that don't know you as Lord and Savior. Bring healing to those of us that are hurting. Bring transformation and change to us all. Father, we offer up this song to you as a, as a prayer. And in this time of prayer, I want to encourage those of you that are here that are carrying a heavy burden in your heart to reach out to someone and ask them to pray for you. If you know someone that, that needs prayer, I want to encourage you to, to go up to them and give them a hug and pray with them. If you're, if you're visiting with us, if you're with us through live stream, you're more than welcome to contact one of our shepherds or any of us here and say, would, would you pray with me today? Our shepherds are now available to, to pray with you here in our assembly. Let's enter into prayer together through this song. Hey, I'm Eddie White, the senior minister for the Eastside Church of Christ. Sure want to thank you for joining us today on our podcast. I hope today's message was indeed a blessing to you. I'd like to invite you to browse our website at eastsidesprings.com to get more information or to contact us. And as always, we indeed welcome you to join us for our worship service in Colorado Springs as we seek to live out Jesus' mission of making disciples of all nations.